from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Jameis. We have a special guest with us today. Yes, my Lucas, my friend Lucas Roten, who is a national champion. Um, welcome to the show. Lucas, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what this race is that you won? And- yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm really uh, stoked to be here. So this is, I won the, the 2023 U.S. National Cross Country Mountain Bike National Championship Race. Um, in my age group, the 25 to 29 class. So been uh, working at that for a long time, and it was it was uh, nice to have a good day on on a day that counted. Where, where was this race? Yeah, it was in uh, Bear Creek Resort in in Pennsylvania, so McCungie, Pennsylvania. Are you in a team, or how does the mountain bike racing work? Is it like the Tour de France, where you have a team and people support one leader, or is it every man for themselves? There are teams. I'm not on a team, but it is it's every man for himself out there. So it's it's going as hard as you there's a lot less strategy than, than in road racing. It's just right. going as hard as you can. However, I can only imagine if there are teams and you're not on a team that it's even harder. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh it's tough. And how do you train for that? Ride six, seven days a week and uh try to eat well and work at it for your whole life. <laughs> what were you doing your training for this race? Yeah, so I've you know I've been working towards this goal for the whole year. So I live in Malibu and, and train in the Santa Monica Mountains mostly, but I did spend a good amount of time, several weeks out here before the event because the terrain is so different. It's real rocky and, and rooty. And I had raced here before in um, 2014, and I knew that it was so so different, and then I'd gain an advantage by riding it more beforehand. Right. How high have you placed before? I uh, had a couple injuries. I used to race pro, right? It's not like I got paid, but but I'm racing, you know, the top guys in the country and in the world. And, you know, I had had okay results around top top 20s in the pro class. And then I got hurt my knee a few years ago and then back to the to the amateur cat one class in 2014 when I raced at Bear Creek also. I was racing Cat One then in the 19 to 24 class, and I, I think I got like seventh that year. So I was like a top 10 guy a long time ago, and then I upgraded to pro, and then back down to Cat One. Cool. Are you sponsored by anybody? I get some support. I'm, I'm super thankful for it, obviously, but it's pretty minimal um, right now. The biggest sponsor is this company called Osmo Nutrition. So they make on the bike hydration, nutrition, and recovery products. Yeah. And how about bikes and components and stuff? I used to get some help with bikes, but uh, I don't anymore. So you've got to make it happen yourself. You fix bikes, right? Too? Yeah, but- totally. This is how I know Lucas is actually a mutual friend of ours, uh, introduced us, and he helps me keep my bike maintained. Well, you can talk a little bit about what you do, but it's, it's really like you have a mobile. Yeah, so I run a, a mobile bike maintenance and repair service business out of my van. And I'll, you know, I'll come to your, your home, your office, wherever, and get your bike tuned up right there on the spot. You don't have to bring it to the shop and, you know, wait days, go pick it back up. So take care of it right there. Well, and you work on mountain bikes, road bikes? Yeah, mountain bikes, road bikes, e-bikes, anything. So gravel bikes. Yeah. We have a couple questions for you. 
Hi, I'm Leo Spinetto from Visibilizados.org, a cycling organization from the city of Buenos Aires, Argentina. And my question is, what is the best way to maintain and care for my bicycle chain so that it's longer? Uh, I'm sorry for my English. Thank you. Awesome. Hi, I'm Leo Spinetto from Visibilizados.org, a cycling organization from the city of Buenos Aires, Argentina. And my question is, what is the best way to maintain and care for my bicycle chain so that it's longer? Uh, I'm sorry for my English. Thank you. Awesome. So keeping your chain, you know, clean and properly lubed will keep your bike quiet and running smoothly. It'll help it shift better. It's, you know, just one of the simplest things you can do to enjoy your ride a little more. So you want to clean your chain off. Preferably after every ride, you can just take a, a dirty rag because it'll make it real dirty real quick. So take a take a dirty rag and you can just backpedal the bike with it leaning against the wall. If you don't have a bike stand, you just lean it against the wall, fence, whatever. And you can uh, run the chain through the dirty rag and try to knock off all the dirt that you can. And then you can just put a light amount of chain lube. There's a whole bunch of different products out there, you know, ranging from wax-based lubes, oil-based lubes. There's dozens to choose from doesn't really matter which one you use. Um, where people go wrong is they they overdo it and they'll particularly with the non-wax base lubes and they'll they'll just smother their chain in, in chain lube and not wipe off any of the excess and then that'll attract a bunch of dirt and grime and grit to the chain and that'll wear it out way faster and actually does a lot more harm than than riding with just a, a dry chain. You've given me this instruction so this is how I've been maintaining my chain occasionally still the chain becomes sort of slippy. It's not as bad when I keep the chain clean and oil it, but it's, it's got to be like several reasons that happens. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons the chain can slip. Uh, typically, well, it will work best when it's when it's clean and, and lubed. Um, that's not the main reason it's it's slipping. That's normally a derailleur adjustment issue. So the derailleur's not not lined up perfectly with the with the gear that it's supposed to be in. Um, so that could be an issue with uh, cable and housing on the bike, or the derailleur hanger could be bent, or the derailleur could be damaged and bent. That's typically a derailleur issue. Most cyclists can't really adjust the derailleur. I mean, it takes some practice like anything, but once you know how to do it, it's a simple, simple procedure. I can barely get air in my tires sometimes. Totally. Well, it's like, you know, how many people, how many people change the oil in their car? You know, it's not a difficult thing, but you know, not many of us do it. Do you well, want to talk about your problem with tires, Seamus? <laughs> Thank you, Nick. I was going to ask that same thing. <laughs> that conversation is probably for more of a therapist. Actually, Lucas, you, you know, my problem with the tire. Remember how he vouched for me. There was a, there was a unique problem with my tire. There, there was. was. It has not lost its air since. Oh, awesome. What was the unique problem? This was a tubeless tire. So instead of an inner tube in there, there's tubeless sealant with tubeless rim tape to seal the seal the system. So it had new rim tape. The tire was new, had plenty of sealant. It wasn't holding well. The valve stem appeared to be sealing well at the, the rim, but I believe the issue is at the valve stem with the tape kind of a unique issue. There's these rubber grommets that they make that can go over the valve stem that'll create a new seal with the old valve stem without you know, replacing it for a new one. You don't normally see that cause a leak. I think that's what was going on. Do you have a preference between tube or tubeless tires? What's better? Oh, tubeless all day long. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Wait, what? 
Yeah, weight, the flat resistance. I mean, with the weight, yes and no, but the flat resistance and even even more than the flat resistance is the ability to run lower tire pressure. So on the mountain bike, you know, you don't have to all pinch flat all day long if I if I don't run 40 PSI within an inner tube, but I can run 25 PSI tubeless and not roll the tire off the rim and I'll get way better traction cornering, braking, the bike handles better, it's a smoother ride all the way around. The same thing applies on the road bike as well. So mm -hmm. instead of running 100 PSI on my road bike, I can run 60 PSI and get better grip, it's smoother and yeah. And that doesn't slow you down? No, no, not, not at all. Hey Lucas, I've got one more question before we go. Yeah. You know, a lot of mountain bikers make the transition into road racing. For me, the most famous is, you know, Floyd Landis or someone like that. Do you have mm -hmm. any interest in, in now that you're a national champion, you know, trying to get on a road team and pursuing road racing or not? Not really. I've, I've raced on the road before a little bit in, in college. And I just, I love, I feel like mountain biking is so pure. It's go as hard as you can pretty much. You're sprinting between, between corners and that's a little more, a little more my speed than, than racing on the road. So how do people find you if they want your services? I know Seamus wants to have you to himself, but other people might want to want to have your services. Message me on Instagram at two wheel tune. It's spelled out T W O wheel tune. Lucas. Awesome. Thanks man. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Seamus. That was great. We, we have to have him back on. Cause I, I think there's more questions that I have about bikes and chains. And I'm sure other, other people do also. I mean, I have nothing but questions about bikes and chains. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, so much of biking is dependent upon driving and all of that. And uh, I, I had a chance to sit down with the art and design columnist from the Los Angeles Times, Carolina Miranda. And she had just written this really wonderful article that made the front page of the arts and arts and leisure section, which in Los Angeles is called the calendar section. And she talked a lot about Henry Grabar's book, uh, Paved Paradise. And we talked about the mainstreaming of some of these ideas. And I think if we can get more mainstream publications, mainstream columnists and writers to talk about what we're talking about now, we have a better chance of making our streets safer for everybody. All right, cool. Let's hear that interview. When I was a kid, I was a paper person. I, I guess I was a, a paper boy. I think that's what got me into both the news and the newspaper, but also biking. So our guest today is a columnist for art and design from the LA Times, Carolina Miranda. Carolina wrote an article that was on the front page of the calendar of the LA Times called The High Price of Parking. And that really got me. And she just used some, some wonderful terms that I think once we wake up and we see what all this stuff is, it really changes how we look at our world. So Carolina Miranda, uh, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to write the article about the high price of parking? I follow Henry. I, I was writing about Henry Grabar's book, Paved Paradise, which is about 
the history of parking. He is a writer who's an urbanism writer whose work I follow in Slate. And so I was very interested in reading his book. And I feel like here in Southern California, like parking is such a visceral topic. Um, needless to say, I've already gotten some interesting letters and emails yeah. from the column I wrote because the minute you raise the issue of parking, people get very heated on, on um, all sides. And his book was really, parking is something I think a lot in terms of design and architecture. Um, it is very unpleasant. And the book was just something that was very illuminating in terms of its history, why we have so much parking, why it's inefficiently used, why parking has made it so difficult to build housing. I think that was right. one of, that was the area I really focused on in my column because I think, you know, whenever a housing development goes in, the first question everyone has is, you know, but what about parking? Will be that will there be enough places to park? And that issue has in part played into the housing crisis that we find ourselves um, in today. And so that was, that was really, it was Henry's book combined with a terrific book by Francis Anderton about the history of multifamily housing in LA. Much of early housing did not right. have parking or very right. limited parking. Um, and so I did a story about those two books together. Yeah. Well, it was a great article. And we had Henry on as a guest a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I really liked about his book also was that I think it has the opportunity to be a crossover book, not just to be read by bike nerds or transportation nerds or whatever, but by the public at large. And that's what really attracted me to your article. It was on the front page of the calendar section, and it has the chance to be read by a lot of people and to open their eyes to this insanity that we have built our way into. And the LA Times, for the most part, does support transit and, and multimodal transportation and things like that. But I don't see enough of these kinds of articles in the Times, and I'm so glad that you did it. Did you get any pushback? And, and what was the pushback from your readers? I, I, for my editors, I did not get any pushback. I think, you know, the composition of the staff on the paper has changed over the years. And, you know, we have a lot of young reporters now, some of whom don't own cars, you know, they right. ride public transit, they ride bikes, they take lifts, um, they get around in, in many different ways. My husband and I share a car. So it means that some of the time um, I'm taking the bus or the train. So I think, you know, if you think How about, about biking, do you bike? I, I do bike, you know, when the LA times, I live on the East side, when the LA times was downtown, I used to occasionally bike to the office down there. I'm currently uh, between bikes. So I feel a little bit like a little bit of a fraud Lost. being on no, the show. Fraud, no. <laughs> well, as a columnist for art and design, I mean, what, what is more art and design than a bicycle? And I think you can even add in function on that list. There. I know, I know. I should probably, I'm not a bike. I, I would feel, I would definitely have to do some research if I was going to write about bicycles, but you know, that's not a bad idea. I'm curious what the pushback was from the readers and what's the next step that a mainstream publication like the LA Times or a mainstream writer like yourself can do to wake up people and open their eyes to this, you know, some of the terms you use in your article, I just loved parking moat around Walmart. I just, I love that. When you go to Ikea or Walmart or Costco, you end up having to walk through this hot sun-baked moat just to get yeah. to the store. And there's a couple Island. other um, behemoth garage doors on these new houses. Yeah. But I think once people 
realize, oh my God, we have this built environment that is so unwelcoming to pedestrians and cyclists. How, how can we change that? And I think an, an article like yours and a publication like the LA Times has a big part to play in that. Yeah, I think, you know, what was so eye-opening about about Henry's book is that he really quantifies things that maybe we've all seen, but that we haven't quite registered. And one of those is that, you know, organization after organization has gone out and done studies of parking in cities, you know, because the, the concern is always there's not enough parking, there's not enough parking. And in fact, in many cases, there is enough parking. And it's just not inefficiently used that often, right. you know, you will have a bunch of lots in a neighborhood, either parking structures or surface lots or uh, lots, private lots in commercial or residential buildings. And altogether, maybe, um, you know, they're at 60, 70% capacity. They're not full. Part of it is because we're thinking of parking as the singular thing attached to each building. And so, um, you know, how many times have you gone out to dinner in LA and seen like a valet overflowing for a restaurant and then next door there's a bank with an empty parking lot? Um, That is parking that's not being efficiently used. And so he has all of these terrific case studies that look at these developers that are, say, trying to mix some commercial development with residential development. So, you know, the residents really use the parking at night, the commercial use it during the day, and you can have one lot for both rather than um, having separate lots that get inefficiently used for each. I mean, I think that's why his book is, as you said, it's like, it's really, it's so engaging. It's written yes. in a conversational tone. Yeah. It has some really funny and crazy There's, stories, yeah. you know, parking crime, parking like rage, parking, this yeah. all, parking everything in there. And I think what it does is, you know, in terms of what you had asked about that reaction that you get on parking, of course, immediately I got letters about like, well, there's not enough parking in my neighborhood and you can't just take parking away until transit is perfect. Right. You know, like, do not do not take my parking until transit in Los Angeles right. is perfect. And I'm just like, well, transit in Los Angeles is a probably never going to be perfect. Yeah. And the issue is that we are building the city of 5, 10, 20 years from now now. Right. And so if we continue to build every home with a big driveway and a two car garage, every building with an attendant parking lot, we are going to continue to perpetuate the same thing. And especially as transit is getting further developed in Los Angeles. You know, now I can take that amazing regional connector across Los Angeles from the east side and not have to like switch trains two or three, you know, bus, train, train, train um, that I used to have to do. And you have a younger generation of people who often don't have cars or they have cars um, that they use in a more limited capacity. Or you have like my husband and myself who are a couple that share car light. Yeah. Yeah. Who are car light, you know, so the reaction is generally that like, don't take my parking until things are perfect. And I think what Henry's book shows and part of what I tried to articulate in my story is that the parking exists in many cases, it's um, badly, it's just inefficiently used, badly organized. And then what Henry talks about in his book is that oftentimes municipalities have free parking on the street. So basically cities have turned over public space so that you can store your car on the public right away. Now, if could I take my bookshelf and put it in that spot? Like, no, I could not. But somehow 
it has just come to be conventional wisdom yeah. that you can put your private car on the public street. And I, th- I think his book really does just a terrific job of articulating how in having free curb parking, cities are basically they're giving it away. Right, you know, totally, they're yeah, just giving yeah. it away for free. And and as a result, people start circling for parking rather than going to the paid lot. Those paid lots are not being used efficiently. And it just kind right. of perpetuates this cycle of parking insanity. For me, writing about these issues, it's a combination of like carrot and stick. You know, like sometimes you have to be the scold and be like, okay, LA, let's stop building so much damn parking. But then you also just sometimes have to feature an attractive project that the parking becomes the incidental story, but it's more environmentally designed. It has less parking density, more human density, right. um, and doing it in ways that that showcase it as something desirable, you know, right. that this is something that you want to be in the office building with like the great parking storage and the ground floor parking shower. Like, right. of course, right. I mean, totally, a yeah. bicycling shower. Like, yeah. of course you want that rather than being like, you know, parking is bad because there comes a point where people start to tune out. And so right. you're right. I think, could we be doing listings where we also include public transit? Yeah, that's that's a, a great idea. And some media organizations have started to do that. Yeah, I love the log line of your article. How about we prioritize people over automobiles. I think that's what it was, right? Um, Build more housing for people instead of cars. Right. And again, I think it's one of those things that once people open their eyes to it, they yeah. see it and and then all of a sudden they can't unsee it. Yeah. And that's what an article like yours did, I think. I mean, what, what I would suggest doing is go into Google Satellite and say, pull up your neighborhood Ralph's with the, with the ground lot, parking lot. Right. Um, and look at the size of the Ralphs versus the size of the parking lot. <laughs> the parking lot is going to occupy most of the land. Right. Um, there. If you look at satellite views of fast food restaurants, often those like the ratio of structures that human can use to right. car infrastructure around it is so skewed like the actual fast food restaurant will be quite small and parking and drive through lanes occupy the rest of the territory again a piece of land in which maybe a quarter of it is habitable to humans i mean that's that's just not sustainable and when when you start looking at it that way i mean i open my whole story talking about being on this trip in Arizona and having to like cross this whole sequence of parking lots to make right. it from my business loop hotel to the Waffle House right. across a major boulevard. And all it is, is tarmac. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're almost forced to drive. Yeah. And in that case, like I had, I was doing a reporting assignment in Tucson and I had decided not to drive or fly. Like I took the bus out. So I didn't have a car. And so, you know, I want to go have breakfast, but like even just walking across the street becomes this kind of like journey across like right, acres right. of tarmac in the Arizona 
uh, heat. heat. I mean, yeah. that's just not, that is not sustainable. And then it raises all kinds of, you know, beyond just the discomfort of say being a cyclist or a pedestrian in that environment. It's like the heat Island effect, what that architecture does to runoff. The land is not able to absorb rain. Right. That water gets like shunted right off and ends up in canals. Um, there's so many other envi- environmental pr- habitat, like right. there's so many other environmental prices that we pay for this, that I think it's really about asking that question of well, like, well, again, that, that that's why it? your title is so good, the high price of parking. And we do, we pay a high price for it. Well, <laughs> in your article, you, you really make the connection between cars and parking and housing. And mm-hmm. the only thing I would add to that is, is the third leg of that stool is, is multimodal transportation. And again, I, I thank you for coming on the show and for writing the article and helping us get the word out to a more main mainstream audience. Can you really quickly tell the audience how to find you and where you are on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter? Sure. Or um, well, you can always find me at the LA Times, uh, Carolina Miranda. You can find me by my byline and there's a contact the reporter uh, email there too. I am on Twitter, Instagram, threads, blue sky, (laughs) all of our fragmenting social media services as CMONSTA. So C-M-O-N-S-T-A-H. Well, thank you very much for your article. Thanks for coming on Bike Talk. And I look forward to, to seeing an article about the art and design of a bicycle. Oh my God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do some research. All of my bikes have always been things I've like inherited or like bought off the right. street. So I'm probably like the most lowbrow bike rider you'll ever no, find. That, so. That's okay. <laughs> Carolina, thanks very much. All right. Have a good one. Thank you for having me. I would love to see Carolina write about the art and design of the bicycle. Well, it was really great to, to see her article on the front page of the calendar and, and to get it out there. And I, I think maybe we we planted a seed for her. Now we have a couple of the movers and shakers in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, working on making their streets safe. Again, together for the first time, Nick Russo, who's the senior transportation planner for Berkshire Regional Planning Commission, and Ricardo Morales, who's the public utilities commissioner of the city of Pittsfield. And they're talking about street safety in their city. And the interview is by Lily Hoffman Strickler, who's from the next door town of North Adams. So she knows the territory. Great. Let's hear it. I am here with Ricardo Morales and Nick Russo. Welcome to Bike Talk. Both of you have been on this podcast before, but why don't you give us a little snippet about yourselves and what you guys do? Thanks for having us here. I'm Ricardo Morales, and in my role with the city of Pittsfield, with the public works, public services and utilities department, leading the department, we have a lot to contribute to bike talk and transportation and micromobility and active transportation. I'm Nick Russo. I'm happy to be back. I've definitely chatted with Nick a couple of times. Grew up here in Pittsfield, working as a transportation planner now with our regional planning agency. And yeah, I love to cycle everywhere as well as walk, take transit, pretty much the whole buffet, whatever I can use to get there most efficiently and safely, I'll do. So I'm definitely making Pittsfield and Berkshire County as a whole more connected and accessible by bike. 
both in the micro sense of making our neighborhood streets safer and getting a full regional connection of trails that seamlessly hook into those neighborhoods as well. I think it's a great opportunity we have developed here with Nick on the regional side, myself and my team on the local city side, and Nick on the community side collaborating and bringing us all together. But we can look at things, I think, on the long run, more holistically in terms of active transportation on the regional, local and community level. I grew up in North Adams, so I'm very well acquainted with Western Mass. And I also now go to school in Western Mass at Mount Holyoke. So I know all about the issues that Western Mass specifically faces with public safety in terms of pedestrian safety, bike safety. So I just want to ask, what does that term public safety mean to you guys? I think it's the most important thing that we need to adopt as a goal is to increase public safety. And the way we do that in a city setting, in a community setting, is to not think about our roadways, our streets, as a place for vehicles to move from point A to point B, and rather thinking of them as where life happens, where community happens, where people exchange goods throughout different locations. And the street is itself another one of those locations where it serves as a connector between places. And we need to provide that in a safe way. There is a place where roads are a point A to point B connector, and that's your connections between towns, connections between regions. And that's definitely a different kind of road. But we need to start thinking about the streets in Pittsfield as places for people and not for cars primarily, especially when we think about people as being the most vulnerable user of that piece of infrastructure. And in Pittsfield, we've done that for a couple of years now. So that's the main goal in my head in terms of public safety. Yeah. To me, I think of the safety of the traveling public, and that includes everyone walking, right. cycling, driving. Because when you make a road safer for the most vulnerable, it rises all ships, right? It makes it safer for everyone. So we're kind of facing that friction now where making something safer might make it more, quote unquote, difficult to drive through somewhere in a way that you're not used to from before. Yeah, that can cause confusion and stress sometimes. That can be a good thing because that allows us to learn more about how we can all contribute to the safety of a neighborhood. And it'll take time to adjust. But I think as long as we stick to it and make sure we share why we're doing things to make either speed slower or to make through travel not quite as direct for cars. And that's kind of my goal through the community side of things. So to share why, not just how things are being done and invite people to actively participate in doing these changes so they feel like they're a part of it and can have some sense of ownership. Not just something that's happening to them, it's happening for them and with them. I think adding a little bit to what I said earlier, at the end of the day, it's where we place our values in the use of our space, in the use of our infrastructure and our built environment. And we can decide, and clearly we have decided in the past collectively where the values are. Right now we have the opportunity to make our own decisions and place value on safety rather than accessibility, for example, in terms of accessibility for motor vehicles. So we can place public safety at a higher value for our region, for our city. And then after that is the next thing, mobility, moving fast through a place. Maybe not. That's for a different type of setting, not through a community or a city. Right. And just sort of jumping off what you've both said about the strange emphasis put on the safety of motor vehicles instead of the people. It really connects into this project that you both are involved in. I understand that both the Holmes Road and West Street projects are quite urgent due to specific safety issues that have arisen in the past. 
Can you talk a little bit about the stories behind why these proposals are focusing on Holmes Road and West Street in particular? What sets them apart from other streets? As unfortunate as these all are, we had a very close call with vehicles striking a kit crossing the road coming home from school. And we certainly do not like that this is the catalyst that provides change to our infrastructure, but it serves to prove that we are not taking this lightly. So for Holmes Road, we saw what happened. We knew that we needed to take action for something like this not to happen again. And we started talking with families, with community in this area. And in the meantime, started implementing some measures with the local police and school department for safer crossings ourselves with installing some better lighting, better signage, knowing full well that whatever we were doing is first, not permanent and second, not good enough. So at the same time, we were doing all these things. We started working on a design for what will work better, what will be safer in a more permanent setting. So that's what we're attempting now. And we're introducing concepts like raised crosswalks called speed tables with narrowing the travel lanes, defining bike lanes on the road, and then where the lanes narrow, defining the use of the shoulder as a raised bike lane on both directions that this section of Holmes Road is part of our bicycle network, one of our high-stress locations where we need to address the conditions here for cyclists as well as people crossing. So in addition to that, the signage and lighting and all those things, the first thing people request, oh, can you put a flashing sign that says people crossing here or kids crossing? And yeah, that's going to capture some people, but it's not going to do much, just a sign. But when we do all these other things, narrowing the road down, speed tables, bicycle facilities, when we add to that, it's probably not even needed at that point because of all the other things that are being done to reduce the speeding. But at that point, it is kind of the decoration on top to capture a smaller part of the audience that all the other stuff didn't do much of. And it's going to be difficult, but at the end of the day is creating an environment that as a driver triggers your slow brain to kick in and really stop and think about what's going on on the road and not be on your fast brain like you're just on autopilot driving down the road. So that's the goal. Unfortunately, with West Street, we had a resident who was struck and didn't survive back in January of this year. We don't have too many fatalities in Pittsfield, luckily. Everyone is too many, of course. So we really wanted to emphasize this neighborhood, especially as a historically redlined and underserved neighborhood in the past. On top of how it's such a mixed area, there's dense apartment developments, a park, a river crossing, and then a connection kind of directly to the grocery store in the downtown area just up the street. So this is a really good example of a downtown mixed-use neighborhood, but it's got this road that just cuts right through it to get people from the outer areas of Pittsfield and other towns kind of into downtown and back. It really catalyzed this opportunity to look at this corridor and make it more pleasant. The people who live there to go about these activities, it should be, for the most part, reachable by foot and bike for those who are able to. So we did an initial kind of a walk to raise awareness around this block after the collision occurred to call on the city to look at this stretch and study it and propose improvements. And that did help to really garner a lot of attention for this intersection. We really worked to get the attention of media and the city to look at this area. We had a meeting about both Holmes Road and West Street last week to share these new concepts and designs and keep going down that road. 
So we're looking forward to still keep going on these developments and get results out there soon. Yeah, on the technical aspect of things, we started looking at the specific location where the unfortunate collision occurred. And we were looking at what happens just before, just after this section of street. And in order to get the speed down, which is the main goal, we needed to stretch this back further. And then as soon as we started doing that, we started encroaching into other problem areas that further our extension of the project area, like the entrance to one of the schools, elementary schools in this area. So we then ended up going all the way to the intersection on Valentine Road. And also at the same time, addressing one of our other needs for bicycle facilities called out in our bicycle master plan, which was including some form of either buffered bike lane or a separate shared use path. What we're looking at, other than narrowing the street down and adding bike lanes, we're also eliminating unnecessary turn lanes, either right-hand turn or left-hand turns, and narrowing down intersection crossings on both directions through West Street and some other side streets, and creating opportunity for better crosswalks, potentially adding some elevated crosswalks, meaning speed tables at the level of the sidewalk. So we're not done with the design. We conducted that first meeting and we heard what the public had to say, generally in favor of the direction we're taking, but there's still some things that need to be addressed. Yeah, I thought the meetings we hosted were very constructive, positive. People were receptive to the ideas. Of course, people who live in those neighborhoods shared very specific details about how they travel through the area, which is always insightful and helpful hearing about specific like site distance issues or just what the experience is like walking through there day to day. So I think we had a pretty good turnout. Folks were interested both from the neighborhood. The city put up some informational signs at the sites, inviting people to come into the meeting who walk by or drive by those sites. I thought that was a really great way of doing public outreach. It was a good, productive meeting. Yeah, you sort of answered my next question there. (laughs) I was going to say, it seems like it's really a passion project. This community has been very impacted by what's occurred, but it seems like the public has been really just involved to a large extent in the planning process. So that's really interesting. Yeah, my goal for the Community Design Center is to eventually have this sort of hands-on third space. It's not like City Hall and it's not like a private design firm or something like that. It's just kind of this community space where people can leave their ideas and let things marinate and show that there's this interest from the broader community in making these changes. With local government, there's a unique opportunity to work together, plotting what Nick started and creating that space for the community to speak through the Community Design Center was a very explicit goal that I had in mind when I reached out to Nick to get these done. And I think in no small part was the outcome of these meetings related to having them be part of the Community Design Center, as opposed to, hey, City Hall is doing a public hearing, like all the other public hearings. On average, we're going to get not many in attendance. And those are likely going to be people that are not that much invested in the community and just are looking for convenience. It's what we notice over and over again. And things like this require a hands-on approach. What is your impact? Not as a driver, but as a user, as someone that lives in this street, that lives in this neighborhood, in this community. And you'll be talking the 26th at Hot Plate about these projects as well, just to let everyone know. I was invited to give my thoughts on the 10-minute city. So it's a discussion about general walkability and why it's important and why Pittsfield is in a unique position 
I say that not because it's the only city in that position, but all the cities that are like Pittsfield are in a unique position to have a good start into creating a more walkable environment for everyone. Okay, so that was Ricardo and Nick and our special guest host, Lily Hoffman Strickler. I love what they're doing in Pittsfield, and I think it is applicable to what we can do in Detroit, in Los Angeles, in New York, all over the place. So I'm glad that these guys are on. Our Boston host, Galen Mook, the head of Massachusetts Bike Coalition, says all biking is local. And to look at any of these issues, you really got to look at where things are happening on the ground. And so much of riding is picking your route and finding different routes and exploring different neighborhoods. You know, when you said all biking is local, that that really hit home for me is finding the safest, best, quickest route for you to get to and from work. How do people get interviews on Bike Talk? They can go to biketalk.org and leave us a message. And we'd love to talk to more people like Lucas Roten and, and, you know, a mechanic or a racer or an advocate in your neighborhood, in your city. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.